From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Groundsman Conversations. Joining me, as always, the man in the lake and the man on the pirate ship, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Gentlemen, how are you? Roger. I'm good, I'm good. Uh, lovely to be in both of your company again. Um, it's been a long week, a wee bit tired, uh, but this is a great way to finish the week, isn't it? Indeed. And our resident captain, how are you, mate? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm quite excited. I've just been speaking to Roger offline. I'm I'm planning to bring my pirate ship down to Lake Como in the summer. Um, I came a couple of years ago, and I thought, well, why not bring the old reef ghost down there and uh, you know taste the local cuisine and stuff. So I'm feeling very good, and the sun is shining in London town for the first time in very months. nice too. Life's very good. very nice too. And we have and we have a guest joining us. But before we get to our guest. Um, as always, plenty to talk about. Uh, Rog, I'm going to go to you first this week. What have you, what's on your radar? Uh, well, it's, it's very, very simple stuff. It's, I've got a couple of things about sports business, but I'm just going to be Mr. Fanboy here. Love to see Mourinho last night. I've always been a big fan of Mourinho, and it was great to see after last night, first of all, an amazing uh, crowd that is following him. He's ignited that city. And if you if you if you looked at the memes last night compared to the night before, it's amazing how quickly football sport changes. You know, Guardiola is the overthinker. Guardiola's never won without Messi, uh, and Mourinho is the first manager to be in all three competitions in the final. Will probably be the the one to first win them. So you know, Mourinho, Mourinho, I'm so pleased because you know his character uh, for right or for wrong, I admire. Uh, I'd like to think um, some of the things are similar to to my character, uh, but he's 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 not noted as much as he should be as a great communicator. What he does is he empowers players, and and you know I was hearing a story about Phil Jones, the Man United player, who who I think turned thirty recently, and Josie was he called him up and spent a, a lot of time on the phone just chatting about. Um, obviously, Phil was injured a lot in that time, but you know didn't need to do that. So um, Mourinho, Roma, Olympic Stadium, full. Uh, it was a great night last night. I thought if you were going to go there, you were going to talk about the um, the uh, the ovation for uh, Ranieri. Yes, yes, that as well. Uh, that was a beautiful moment. For those that don't know, and I'm including um, some of the commentators on, on, on English TV last night, Ranieri actually managed Roma. Uh, so it wasn't as if he was just a spectator there. 
Uh, he was exceptionally unlucky to lose the title in that year to Mourinho at <laughs> Inter Milan. He is a, a, a kind of like East End version of a Cockney. Because he comes from that area of Rome, Testaccio is called. And, you know, obviously you. he got the innovation. <laughs> he got the innovation there and you saw he was moved. And then he heard a, a smaller noise from the other side of the ground and he realised it was the Leicester fans and it was just too much for him. And, and you know, I don't know. I, I just love those moments. That, that That's a candidate for sports moment of the year for me. Yeah, I'm sure any Fulham fans in the in the crowd would, would have given him a, a bit of polite applause as well, Rog. I have to say, uh, I didn't see the Roma-Leicester um, game, but I watched the two Champions League semifinals and... I mean, absolutely everything you could want from football on those two nights, Rush. Absolutely everything. It was just remarkable to watch what happened. I thought, I thought Liverpool were brilliant under an awful lot of pressure in the first half. They looked, they looked like they were in trouble, and a fantastic second half. All the emotions, the crowd were crazy. It was just fantastic to watch. And then at the end of that Man City Real game, I'm still, I'm still stunned by what happened uh, in that that last five minutes of normal time and then extra time, Roger. It was just, it was quite something. Yeah, uh, to, to, to quote another Scotsman, uh, football bloody hell, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel sorry for Man City. I think the, the referee didn't do them any favours on the night. No, he was terrible I thought, referee. I, I thought they were the better team. I, I think Liverpool and Man City are the two best teams in the world. Benzema, you know my views about that. Um, so I wasn't full of joy about all of that. But I, I have to tell you, man, um, Man City are running out of steam. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, we talked, the uh, Ragnick of Man United a, a few weeks ago said, how come Liverpool can still be going for all four uh, and still look as fresh as a daisy? Um, that's an interesting story that we'll watch in the coming weeks. Indeed, indeed. Well, don't keep it all on football. I know it isn't your favourite sport, Giles, but what have, uh, what have you been looking at this week? Well, I, actually, I do want to you'd be delighted, and I do want to join the, the football chat because uh, we're having our house painted, and our painter is a chap called Dean. And Dean is, a like you, a lifelong Fulham fan. And uh, he's, so he's probably... You've met, you've he's met prob- us both? Well, the old he, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you're about the same age. And uh, although he's, I suspect, an infinitely better painter than you are. Anyway, it was a bank holiday Monday. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, but, but a bank holiday Monday, as you know, when, when Fulham uh, won 7-0. Anyway, Tuesday morning comes. There's still quite a lot of the house to do. And I get a, a croaky message from Dean saying... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to make it uh, to work today. And I, I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, me and the lads. I mean, he goes to every away match. He is a proper fan. He's absolutely good as gold, and he's been giving me lots of the history of Fulham, and it's he's great." That wouldn't he have said, taken long. Yeah, <laughs> it's the oldest. Steady. It's the oldest professional football club in London, Rog. Yeah, but London's soft, soft southerner rubbish. Football's a northern game. Was you, Rog, you guys? Don't got make it. me talk. Don't make me talk <laughs> about the Europa League final. Don't make me talk about it, Rog. It's, it's a founded in the. I, maybe it wasn't founded by the public schools, Rog. I might be wrong there. But anyway, that's not the point of the story. <laughs> the point of the story is that Dean doesn't make it into work. I said, "Why not, you lightweight?" He says, "Because." 
for every goal, you had an agreement for every goal that Fulham might score, I had to neck a pint. <laughs> and 7 0, he's an old boy, he couldn't take the pace, and there was no way he was going to get his Farron ball neatly on the kitchen, on the, on the kitchen wall. He, he pulled so he a pulled, sickie. He pulled, he pulled a, sickie. a sickie. It was absolutely brilliant. A DVD. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's, been, it's been a rough year for poor old Dean. We've scored seven three times, six twice. Exactly. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a long said, year for him. He, he said, he, 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 I was speaking to him today because I think they're up to play Sheffield and he goes up early right. to, to go the night before. And he said, well, I think you've scored something like 101 or 103 goals in the That's season. Right. He said, it's caused havoc with his liver. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but so you, anyway. you, say, you say that about all these goals, Grant. Uh, there was a serious point that came out this week around Fulham uh, and around parachute payments and the massive advantage you had in your wage bill compared to everybody else in that league. We won't go into it today, but um, these stories aren't going away. The parachute Roger, payments... Can, can the- I have a week? Can I have a week to enjoy <laughs> no, winning the no. championship 7 nothing, sealing the championship 7 nothing. Just give me a week. That's all I ask. That's not too much. That's not too much. You can rain on my parade. That's, uh, I expect that from That's you, fine. being a doer That's Scotsman. Fine. Hey, but Grant, I've got a question for you. I've got a question for you. I, a, little, a little birdie tells me that you've been uh, playing a little bit of golf up in, uh, up in Scotland. Can you, can you uh, confirm or deny, and how was it? I deny everything. My golf is shocking. My golf is an embarrassment to uh, to me, to anyone playing golf with me. I'm giving the game up, Giles. I've decided that uh, it's no longer for me. So I deny everything golf-related. Um, I played a bit of golf in South Carolina. I haven't played any golf anywhere else. And uh, even the golf in South Carolina was uh, was a bit shobby. I you, say, sound a bit as shobby. Petulant. you sound as petulant as Sergio Garcia getting caught in the rough and then saying, I want to go and play on another tour. It's yeah, quite it was clearly- interesting. Oh my God, what a spoiled brat. I mean, I, I know Sergio a little bit from my former life and he's a very good lad actually, But he and he is tempestuous, which is, um, he's Latino, so that's fine. But as he's sort of fumbling around the cabbage to not use a euphemism and start to sort of whine that, uh, whine that he's on the, uh, you know, the PGA Tour isn't good enough and he's looking, I mean, really, just get a grip, pal. Just get a no, grip. Was shabby, yeah. but did you see what happened? Did you see it actually what happened? No. With the rules official. The, the, but you saw what – so the rules official basically called a time penalty on him and the PGA Tour actually released a statement the day or the, later that evening saying Sergio was absolutely right, the rules official was wrong, and he started the timer too early. So not, I mean, it's obviously an absolute every right to be frustrated. I mean, as you say, it was a petulant outburst. But very interesting that he said uh, – you know, he said what he said, you know, I can't wait to leave this tour. So you obviously know where his mind's at. And obviously the other story – golf-related came out yesterday was this talk of Mickelson having run up 40 million in gambling debts, which um, it's easy to believe that given his his track record, given the insider trading stuff, given all the gambling stories we've heard before, it's very easy to believe that number. Amazingly, Charles. Well, yeah, I remember, I think I may have told this story before, but I remember also a few years ago, Phil coming into the uh, HSBC, big, big sort of enormous marquee, having won the HSBC champions, the WGC win, and he comes in with the shit-eating grin and full of euphoria and, and charming everybody as he, as he does and challenging the then chairman of the bank to a passing competition and, and creating a wager on, on the passing competition until a lackey comes up to him and says, betting is actually illegal in China. You better stop. <laughs> <laughs> what so, were the yeah, stakes, 
apart from legal or not legal, who is going to take Phil Mickelson on in a yeah. Here's a good idea. I'm, ba- I'm bound to win. <laughs> Actually, no, no, to be fair, in North De- Devon, there is the most fiendish um, sort of crazy golf. And I, I've played a lot there over the years and I take on anybody as you go up the elephant's tail and down the giraffe's neck and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> So I, I, I don't take know. Them on they, there. Aren't they both pubs in Chelsea? Jazz. <laughs> yeah, very good. Listen, talking about uh, London and, and um, what about Ronnie O'Sullivan? I mean, like oh, we've talked about seen. him. We've talked about him many times, and, and on the Hugh Henry podcast, we, we we talked a lot about it. But you know, and also the way he spoke afterwards about the pressure he was feeling and how he was scared of uh, what's his uh, Trump, uh, the player, the, the player. I just love that. And and the point I want to make is this. I haven't seen the final at the Crucible for a good few years. And why did I tune in this weekend? Yeah, because of Ronnie. Because of Ronnie. Box office. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm exactly the same, Rog. Exactly the same. That longevity as well, to have won that many titles over such a span. I yeah. think I read that you've got the Steve Davis era, which was basically the 80s, and then you yeah. had Hendry in the 90s. But, they, but by the age of 32, neither of them really won again. And what Ronnie has done is just, over time, just kept, well, kept on it, it coming back. Well, it takes its toll, that snooker, John. It takes its toll on <laughs> that snooker. You know, all that, all that, all that running around, it's, uh, it's exhausting. Ray Reardon got to the final at 53, I think. So I think Ronnie's still got a few years left in him yet. Talking about taking uh, its toll, I mean, do we want to spend a minute on that women's boxing match with our friends at DAZN? I mean, I don't know if you saw that, but that is one oh, of I the best fights. That is one of the best fights I have ever seen. And, and, and you're and, from Glasgow, Rod, so you've seen a few <laughs> fights between two women. <laughs> like, well, he's, caused, he's caused most of them, I suspect. <laughs> No, no, listen, guys, serious, seriously, I mean, they were knocking six bells out of each other. They really were, I mean, like, they were going at it from the start to the finish. And, and, and you know, Dazon, uh, good, great numbers, the, the arena was packed. And you, you, you kind of, like, uh, pair that up as a trade with, a, again, another hundred grand crowd at uh, women's football, soccer at Barcelona. I mean, it's coming, it's coming hard, and I'm so pleased, so pleased. But check out women's boxing. That is the future. That is the future. I'll be honest with you, Rog. It, it just doesn't appeal to me. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why. I'm, I don't have any great desire to see two women beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> they were really good boxers, seriously, and like they were taking shots. And oh, just I'm not like, saying they weren't. I'm not saying they weren't. It's just not someone that I, I feel any desire to watch, I'll be honest with you. You'll change your mind. You always do. You think? Yeah, well, you say these things. <laughs> Four years I've been telling you what's coming. You always say, not do. Not for me. Not for me. Not for... <laughs> next, year, next year you'll be on the Saudi Arabia golf tour where you're cheering, cheering like a madman. Yeah, well, you know, listen, mate, if the Saudis... Uh, Contacted me and offered me a couple of hundred million to go and play golf. Right, I'd probably take off on it at this point. To be honest with you, um, what else, Giles? Anything non-football related, Giles? You're always a good man to go to for non-football related stuff that isn't women's boxing. No, it's just it, what's what's quite interesting is it's the the cricket season started properly now in 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 England and with the sun shining and it, it get you get that shift in gear as people. You've got South Africa, New Zealand coming over. You've obviously got the prospect of the hundred and and twenty twenty cricket. 
off the back of where we, you know, the IPL is just finishing. So as a cricket fan, I'm getting excited, particularly as you start seeing the, the headlines. England have got a new cricket captain in Ben Stokes. Can he be better than Flintoff and Ian Botham, former all-rounders? So there's just the new narrative of the summer. We, we're going to be talking about Radicanu, I suspect, as she sort of gets ready for um, the, the summer in Europe with, with the Grand Slams. And is she good enough? Is she not good enough, etc.? She seems to do quite well. She did all right in Madrid until... She got, I think she got sick again, or she got sort of some pains again. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm a big summer sport person because I love pims, I love cold lager, I like sitting outside, and um, it's all coming in. You know, the hibernation is over. As as Sid Waddell famously once said, Giles, what an athlete! I, I love pims, I love lager. Yeah, okay, fine. What else, what else do we need to know? There really isn't we, we, much we else. Should- we shouldn't let that pass by mentioning um, the Rajasthan Royals and the new investment they got. You know, obviously, um, Anoj was on the, the, the show. Uh, it was a great show. Anybody that hasn't listened to that. But guess what? You know, um, more celeb athlete investors, Chris Paul and uh, Larry Fitzgerald from the NBA and NFL, respect- respectively. Um, IPL, uh, Redbird. Wow. That's, that's where the action is. Yeah, it seems to be. Josh, just coming, just coming back to Ben Stokes, I watched that with interest, him being made England captain. What do you make of that? Because obviously, again, this has happened in the past and it tends to not work, right? When you put your best player as captain in the England cricket team, there are plenty of occasions in the past where it just hasn't worked. Is, is Stokes going to be the exception or the rule, do you think? Well, I don't know. I think I think he is a, an instinctive player. When you think I, the, the comparison actually with Botham and Flintoff and, and him are quite, um, they, they work quite well because they all play in that that sense that they play with their with spirit. They play with force of personality. They don't play it necessarily in a. It's not so tactical. It comes from somewhere which is very very special. Different to say. Um, Kapildev, Imran Khan and Richard Hadley, who were perhaps the other great all-rounders, who were more thinking, they were less, I mean, they were very destructive players, all of them, particularly Imran, but I mean, he went on to be a, a president of Pakistan, which I don't think Botham's, well, he is but Lord Baron Botham now, so maybe he'll, Baron Botham, maybe he will end up running the company, Boris likes him, I uh, digress, but Going back to Stokes, I don't think you should shoulder captaincy on the most, not just the best player on the pitch, but also he's got to do everything. He's got extraordinary fielding statistics. He bats, he bowls. But cricket is mobile chess, and you need to be thinking all the time, particularly test match cricket. There are so many nuances. And whilst on one extreme you have the Brearley era, who was not very good but a brilliant thinker, Having the best player who is mercurial and trying to do everything, I just don't think the, the human brain um, can necessarily do it if you're that kind of player. But I would love to be proved wrong because the Ben Stokes story anyway is an extraordinary one on and off the field. And, you know, he, I was thinking the other day, just reading the media about him, given that a few years ago he was duffing up people outside a nightclub in Bristol and now he is a, a national treasure again. I think he'll end up being a national treasure. I hope it's with the postscript that he was a great England captain, but I, I'm not certain. Well, there's, there's hope for Roger Mitchell on that basis. Well, listen, Jens, we have um, we have a guest ah. joining us. Uh, <laughs> Giles, why don't, you, uh, why don't you let everybody know who we're about to chat to? Well, I'm excited. Well, I'm excited by all our guests. They're all triumphant. But Ollie Slipper is um, he's a great character. He's a veteran of the, of the sports industry. He's an entrepreneur. 
Um, he's very inspirational. Um, and over his 25-year career in the sports industry, he's been a real game changer and been a catalyst as technology in particular has so weaved its way into, into the sports industry. He's currently uh, executive chairman of Pitch International, which is a big sports marketing agency. They, they basically flog stuff, television rights and sponsorship. But maybe more famously, he was the co-founder of Perform, which was really one of the very early disruptors um, in sports streaming and led to that business um, IPO and then privatization. And he, he did very well out of it. And it was really ahead of its time. He's also been a founder of Masamo and Pit Guru and has been an investor himself in sport and fintech and consumer tech stuff. A lot of the stuff that we talk about all the time, he's, he's backed himself. Things like the Global Psyching Network. He's a great friend of Andrew Croker, who's been a, a sort of a kingpin of the industry for a long time and another great character. And he's on the board of the, the PDC, which means he knows the Hearns, father and son, very well. So that's definitely worth asking about. He's got some good stories there. And he's on the board of the Oval Invincibles, who uh, obviously, you know, it's all going to be part of the, the, the 100 and, and, and where cricket goes forward. He describes himself as a degenerate gambler, which immediately appeals to me. Um, He's a Spurs tragic, which doesn't appeal to me. And he plays paddle tennis, which does, because I'm pretty shit at tennis. And my mother was very good. She played internationally. And I was a great disappointment to my mother for many reasons for all my 51 (laughs) years of my life. But I had a go at paddle last year. And it's like table tennis in a big box so anybody can do it. You can't really miss the ball. Um, so I think it might be the future for Ollie and for me. So that's Ollie Sipper. Let's bring him on the show. Ollie Sipper, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertain? I, it's very good to see you. Thank you very much. Great to be on, uh, on your wonderful podcast. Oh, well, stop it, Tish. Well, normally I like to ask the first question, but my co-presenter, Roger, is champing at the bit to get to you. He's um, very excited and pleased that you're on the show. Um, so I'm going to let him uh, kick off and I'm just going to just wait to hear what you say, really. Okay, yeah, no, uh, Ollie, great to, great to see you and um, congrats on the beard. And I'm going to like lead in a little bit because it's, it is a very Greek-looking beard. And the thing that I really like about your background, and there's a million things to like, is that you studied the classics. And there's this great word in the classics. My son also did the classics and uh, he got really enthused by his teacher and everything like that. There's this great word, polytropus, which I think absolutely applies to you. Uh, polytropus could be ability to adapt. It could be, in English, maybe eclectic. It could be resourceful. I'm wondering if what you decided to study at uni and uh, how it informed your life and your career going forward? Because I think it's a little bit of a lost art studying the classics. Well, when you say classics, I wasn't exactly a classicist. So I, I did uh, elements of Latin and Greek, but ultimately it was uh, it was ancient history. So I think it's probably a thick bloke's classics. Um, but I did sort of Too Greek up to... Yeah, I did Greek up to sort of GCSE level at uh, Manchester University and probably Latin somewhere closer to A-level level. But I did enjoy, I guess, those subjects because it's ultimately sort of puzzle solving. Um, and, and and that's, you know, something that I've always, I guess, kind of enjoyed. So, yeah, maybe it did slightly inform 
where I wanted to go. I think probably it was because I couldn't think of anything else to do and they gave me a place. So I, there was no sort of, there was certainly no particular sort of strategy behind doing it. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed, I certainly enjoyed my three years at university and, and probably the lack of um, lecture time each week was, uh, was a bonus too. Ollie, you've been in the, the sports industry for well over a quarter of a century, which dates you, but actually we're all quite old on this. And, you know, particularly Grant and Roger, they're miles older than us. But I wonder when it was that you thought that the sports industry making a living from sport was something you wanted to do. Did that come very, very young? Was it a passion you had playing sport as a kid? Was it? How did it come in? Because you've genuinely been a big part of the sports industry, particularly here in the UK for a long, long time. And that place often comes from a place of passion. I just wonder if there was something that that, that led that. Well, I mean, I, looking back to when I was maybe 17 or 18, I, you know, I was pretty focused on being a professional cricketer and I sort of achieved that goal being signed by Surrey when I left school. But that was a, a pretty short and unspectacular career where they sort of released me after my two years of um two years of averaging, I don't know, mid-20s for the Surrey second 11. So, um, you know, but sport was obviously a big part of my life, was something I was very interested in. And uh, having left Manchester, I, I managed to get on the graduate programme at Accenture, which was just a, you know, a, a massive management consultancy. And the first project, I, I guess, when you meet your sort of the managers and stuff, and they, they kind of get a sense of who, you know, what you are, who you, you know, what interests you, uh, that sort of thing. So I was... Um, the, the first project I did for sort of four or five weeks was the launch of the Sony PlayStation, which was really good fun and, you know, exposed you to new technologies. A lot of the content that, you know, their main titles were sports related games. And then from there, one of the managers um, took me to NTL, which ultimately sort of became premium TV. Uh, so they had, they had made investments in uh, digital sports streaming rights, you know, well, be- well before the curve and, you know, Roger will know this back in his days when he was at the SPL, sort of make taking equity states in football clubs in return for electronic media rights. I think they were then called. Bane which, of my life. Bane of my yeah, life. Glasgow exactly. Rangers all of a sudden thought they didn't belong to a league. They had rights to sell on their own. This was all down to you, Mr. Slipper. All well, your no, fault. I de- it definitely wasn't down to me. I was just a little squirt who was told to go and sort of find out how to build a website and stuff like that. But it, it got me into that and got me into that sector. And, it's you know, the reason uh, I, I think because I could talk football and not many of the graduates or managers at Extension knew much about it. So, my first sort of job there was really going around to the 72 football league clubs and convincing them to sign up to this new digital joint venture with the football league and telling them that they would earn you know billions of pounds which ultimately they didn't nor did ntl but you know it was part of getting me into the sports industry well you can I ask you just going back to the your your time with surrey playing cricket as a professional it's tough for those of us who are big fans of any sport to really get a sense of the step up between being a, a good cricketer and a professional cricketer or a, you know, or, or a plus two handicap golfer and playing on the tour. Can you talk a little bit about what you found when you made that final step up to that professional level, what that was like for you going through the process of either realizing, okay, I'm good, but I'm not good enough, or whether it spat you out or it was just a decision you came to that said, you know, what, I, I could keep thrashing away at this, but I'd be much smarter to go into business because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just not, quite good enough to make it at the top level yeah I mean I think between sort of 17 or 18 I, I had a couple of very good years for like the Surrey Academy scoring a few hundreds here and there and then 
Um, and then literally the day I left school, I sort of became a professional cricketer. And that is quite a difficult thing to, to sort of get your head around. It, it went from being a hobby that I was pretty good at to actually your job. Uh, and when things are going well, I was, you know, it was fine. I remember I, I scored a sort of 70 and an early 80. And then I went through this rut of batting at number six because that's, you know, that was the place that was in the team. And I'd always just been an opening, I'd been an opening batsman. And I just didn't know how to face spin bowling, and particularly sort of wily old pros. And I remember I'd get sort of duck, duck, duck. I'm like, God, am I any good at this sport? So um, that was, that for me was like, it was quite early in your life. Like it was a pretty fundamental failure. Now, ultimately I sort of managed to sort of get a bit better and I scored a couple of hundreds in sort of that sort of second 11 style cricket. But I think probably the thing that convinced me that this probably wasn't the right thing for me is that the two other guys that signed on the same day as me were a guy called Alex Tudor and a guy called Ben Hollyoak, who, who sadly passed away. And they were just so much better than I was. And they both went on to play for England and you could see pretty early, you had to be, I guess, pretty blind not to realise that, you know, I had a level and they were a, a level significantly above me and, you know, ultimately went on to have stellar careers. How, how do you kind of mentally deal with that? Because I, I've always wondered, I, I was a good footballer, but it was never an option for me to, to go down the road. I never got anywhere near that. But I've, I've had friends that were either stud golfers or stud footballers and just talking to them about that moment in time where mentally you have to shift and accept that this passion of yours, which you know everyone should be so lucky as to as to make their passion their job and earn money doing something they genuinely love, that mental moment in time where you had to say, "Okay, I need to move on here." How, how did you deal with that? Um, it, it's you know unlike a football, I guess it's unlike a sort of you're suddenly released at the end of your contract. I kind of knew this was going to happen and I'd already mentally got my head. I'd, I'd told Surrey I was joining, uh, going to Manchester University. So if I would have become a sort of a part-time player for the next three years. And that was something that my dad was like insistent on that, you know, you don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So I think they probably realised that I'd come to that realisation anyway. And quite frankly, so I... There was never any, there was not sort of one moment where you sort of walk into the manager's office and go, sorry, you're not good enough, bye-bye. And, you know, you see this with all of these young footballers in academies where, you know, they live their lives trying to make a career and then suddenly it's, it, you know, it's taken away from them. So it was never that hard, that sort of hard stop where I was like, God, I'm sacked, what am I going to do? I think I always had another option. And so it, I probably dealt with that pretty well. I almost thought, I saw those couple of years almost as a bonus you know, the fact that I'd done it and played in some great grounds. And so for me, it's sort of, you know, I can put it on my CV. I you know, I've been to Australia, I've been to South Africa, I'd met lots of mates for life, but, you know, ultimately I wasn't good enough. Do you think, though, it gave you an appreciation? You know, you talk about quality professional sport, which you've now been very much a, a ringmaster in, in, in all sorts of different iterations in your career. Do you think just having that fundamental appreciation firsthand of how good and how cruel uh, sports is and how difficult it is to be at the very top of the game for a very long time, whatever sport men and women play. Do, do you think that's helped you? I think so. And, and what, what it teaches you is the best sports people aren't the most talented necessarily. That obviously helps. It's in, in, in individual sports that ultimately cricket is, although it's played in a team environment and in, uh, you know, you need such mental robustness to deal with setbacks and you, I could see that 
the sort of, you know, the real guns in the dressing room. They, they just had that sort of thick skin that was probably better than mine in a professional sports environment. But maybe that did help me sort of, as you go into business life, you've sort of been around some pretty impressive people. And, you know, some of that rubs off on you a little bit. Ollie, so let's get into this business life because the people that are listening to this, especially the younger ones, I want them to understand how absolutely fundamental your career has been to the industry where it is today. So bear with me here because this is a story that is worth telling. You said you were quite a young chap in premium TV. The timing as everything is in life is, 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 is so crucial. We're at the run up to the dot boom. We're in a moment where we're starting to auction off 3G uh, licenses for a lot of money. Media rights are going up. Big deals are getting done. New entrants are coming into the market. NTL was one of them. Uh, you guys were buying stakes and clubs, as you said. Uh, Sky was bidding for Man United. Uh, Granada, I think it was Liverpool and Arsenal. Uh, it was a go, go, go time. Uh, in some ways, some of the people in Web3 should realise that they aren't the first ones to have gone through these cycles. You were at that moment, and then that moment changed with um, the dot-com bust and, and the Twin Towers. And you, as a very young man, found yourself in the middle of incredible uh, responsibility. Uh, Premium TV, if I'm not mistaken, had a cap table, had shareholders that were basically rather nasty vulture bondholders that you had to get together uh, to make them realise that they would get more value by betting on you, pun intended. Uh, and then you you set about creating Perform by the merger of Premium and, and Inform. You pretty much started what I think is now clear to everybody, which it, which I call this the centrality of betting revenues to the sports industry. Perform led the way in that. Uh, now now everybody, Genius, Radar, IMG Arena. Tell us how a young man who gets promoted to enormous responsibility, probably before he, uh, he thought he would, how you deal with such red hot fire coming your way? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the first thing was, you know, I was in the, I was at, in the right place at the right time. So the sort of NTL parent company was going into bankruptcy and the only thing that kept premium tv alive was a parent company guarantee with some delaware company that you know that the ntl basically had to keep alive to get through its chapter 11 bankruptcy so don't don't get me wrong i was lucky there because if ntl could have closed premium tv down they would have done in a heartbeat but they couldn't and so they were stuck with this uh, little anomaly sort of sports websites early stage streaming business and I remember Barkley Knapp, who was sort of the, the head of this NTL uh, Europe uh, sort of... I met him once, yeah. Yeah, so he came over and sort of interviewed uh, probably the top 30 staff, of which I would have been number 29, the commercial manager. And I got, a, I got a sense that this was my time. And so slightly opportunistically, I sort of pitched to him an idea that, like, let's massively reduce costs. Let's try and move the... Uh, the website deals away from sort of equity into, you know, uh, a sort of a SaaS model, really, with a tiny piece of upside around sort of revenue generation in betting and in advertising and in subscriptions. 
And I got the call the day after saying, right, we like your idea. You're too young to do it. So we're going to drop in a guy called Rod Henwood to be your boss. But he's only going to do this for a year or so because it's an interim role. So with, with, with Rod, who I learned a huge amount of, we went round, we renegotiated all of those deals with the football clubs. And I can remember some comedy ones, you know, bowling into the Football League's commercial committee where effectively we were, we were telling sort of 10 suits that we were going to, you know, rather than pay them nine million pounds a year for the right to run their websites, they, they had to pay us two million pounds a year. Otherwise, we were going to go black in a week, um, which was a slightly idle threat. But anyway, <laughs> we got it through. I remember sort of Barry Hearn marching into the meeting half an hour late and saying, right, young man, are you going to F us or are you going to totally F us? And I went, well, we're just going to F you, Mr. Hearn. And he, he said, right, well, <laughs> as, as far as I see it, uh, that is uh, our only option, chaps. We need to sell tickets. We need to, um, you know, build databases. So right now, this is our only option. And he sort of pushed the deal through. And so he was a very important part in the sort of survival of that business in the earliest sense. And then, you know, then we quickly got to a position where, you know, profitability wasn't far away. Rather than losing £10 million, turning over a million, we were, you know, turning over three losing a million and I could see a real path to profitability and that that came that didn't come through building out a bigger website management business and going after lots of other websites it came through content ownership and we were just starting to see the online betting market really explode yeah. bet365 were our official betting um partner on the websites and they were about in the early days probably 90% of our revenue because the online ad market hadn't really picked up and I remember, you know, Simon Denyer, who had just left IMG, he had acquired some darts rights and he had sold them exclusively to Blue Square. And we had started talking, we were doing some content ventures with them. And I said, right, let's go and see Mr. Coates and let's pitch him an idea of acquiring a whole load of content. And and they bought into it. And, and quite frankly, that was that really was the start of something that was quite special because they were so far ahead of the incumbent betting operators because they'd sold their shops and they'd gone digital only and their product was always ahead. And so everyone was always playing catch up with them. And they, they are to a degree still playing catch up. Still, and, yeah. so what, and so what they ended up doing is because Bet365 bought it, the others felt they had to. And then we created this infrastructure and then, you know, you know, you talk about the various sort of the, the dot-com boom. Then we had the financial crisis in, 2008 2009 and that's where all of our big competitors like the IMGs of the world the infronts the sport fives they all went into panic mode and retrenchment mode because their core business which was say sponsorship or hospitality was destroyed whereas we were digital only so all we could see was upside so we used that time we, we reinvested all of our profits into content and you know went from streaming a thousand live events a year to 25,000 and built quite a successful, uh, significant streaming business off the back of it. So Simon, you mentioned IMG there. I think the guys of my generation in the sports industry always refer to perform um, as uh, along these lines. If IMG had had their wits about them, they would have strangled you at birth. How big a role did Simon play coming from IMG and knowing how they would have thought uh, about either underestimating you or not seeing you coming or, or, you know, is it, I mean, is it that important that, you know, he came from IMG and let you understand what their thinking was? 
I think it probably was, but you know they had their, they had big challenges for a couple of years around then. So we were really able to sort of build by stealth and and get some critical scale. But you know Simon was you know you know maybe I I'm sort of taking a lot of the credit. It wasn't just me. It was me, Simon, John Gleisha, um, Andy Meesham. There was a bunch of us that sort of we were all at the right times in our careers. We were, you know, late twenties, early thirties, very hungry, very aggressive. And we just went for it. And what Simon bought was, you know, a discipline around rights acquisition that I obviously didn't have. I was more of a technologist and a product and a content person. And Simon, Simon really knew the sort of the, the art of the buy and sell and, and constructed, you know, a lot of that side of the business. So, you know, we were a formidable double act and, you know, not just a double act. It was, it was a team effort that built something that was pretty special. Ollie, tell me, you've t- you talked about Simon, you've talked about Barry Hearn, and I know you're on the board of the PDC and I'm sure we'll have some questions about that because they're always worth it. But I wondered when Andrew Croker came into your life, when, when did you first meet Andrew? What, what was the history there? Because you've obviously known each other now for a long, long time. But but when did that all start? Well, that's, it's funny. You know, when, you've, when you're really young and you go to these sort of sports conferences, and I remember going to, what was the football one he was involved with? Soccer X? Soccer X, yeah. Soccer X, yeah. Dan Reeve, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I remember being at Dubai Soccer X and sat there in my premium TV stand that probably cost me 20,000 quid and generated absolutely zero interest. Nothing. Um, yeah. And I remember Croker walking, this was about 2004, Croker walking past, going, and I was thinking, please stop, please stop to speak to me. And he just sort of walked past and ignored me. And I was like, oh, that's a bit disappointing. And then about two years later, I was on a holiday with my wife uh, and we were in Cornwall and I got this uh, call and uh, it was in one of those sort of areas of no network signal. And he said, hello, it's Andrew Croker. And I was like to Sam, stop the car. Um, because you know he was one of the big, one of the big dicks or big wigs maybe um maybe big dick someone calls him um in the sports industry and um he said right i want to come and meet you i've got a plan he i think he was the like the head of corporate development at sport 5 and he said i'd like to buy you and i'd like to put you together with i think it what was uh, dave wood's old production business was it uh i can't remember and can't remember and with opto who ultimately we ended up acquiring and he, and he had this sort of vision for something that was quite interesting. So anyway, they came to meet us. Um, but I kind of, I came away from that thinking, well, that feels like a lost opportunity because what I didn't want to do was premium TV just become the digital arm of Infront. So I called him afterwards and said, how about you go away and try and find some other money and we do this ourselves? And he's like, good idea. And he called me back about a week or so later and said, right, I've got this guy uh, called Lem Blavatnik, who's interested in sport. He was the underbidder on Sport 5. Why don't we go and pitch it to him? So, uh, and I said, well, hang on, let's, let's bring Simon Denyer into this as well, because if you put the two of us together, you're going to have a much more successful and strong business. So we sort of, we, we pitched, it was about two weeks later, we pitched Jorg Mohar to sat on our board and ran Len's telco business. And it was the first deal he'd done uh, for Len. And, you know, we I think we closed it in about four weeks uh, because the vulture funds had ultimately had their money back um, in, in droves, actually. And then, you know, we gave them another twenty five million pounds to buy premium TV out um, and then merge the business immediately with Inform. So that was how I met Andrew. And then Andrew stayed as chairman for three or four years. I mean, what Andrew is was brilliant at and and, and still is brilliant 
is opening doors. Uh, and we were two very young CEOs, didn't really have that big a network in sport. And, you know, Andrew, to his absolute credit, what he does is he, he will get you in front of anyone and he will say, right, over to you chaps, you're the experts. And we sort of did that and he, he grew our network. And then ultimately when we floated, he was not independent. So he stepped down and, you know, remains a, a great friend and um, someone we, we both, Simon and myself, both stay in regular contact with and actually have done multiple investments with since. Ollie, let me ask you. You, you said there. You mentioned you were um, you were young CEOs, and, and I, I I got that sense. And I, I was I was trying to figure out by doing the math how how old you were at the time. I would think early thirties, maybe. Where does that confidence come from? Where does that confidence to 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 sit there and make those kind of suggestions to someone like Andrew Croker? Because so many people, the vast 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 majority of people, would never ever think to call a guy back and say, "Hey, how about we do this ourselves." That comes from somewhere. I'm really curious to, to to know whether you've always been that guy, or it was good mentors you had, or it was just an idea that couldn't fail. I'm really curious as to as to what made you pick the phone up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure it was me picking the phone up. I think it was me and Andrew sitting together and having a coffee the week after, and sa- and saying, "I don't think this is right," and he's like, "Nor do I." Should we go and do this together? So, I mean. I felt that at that time we had amazing momentum. We were sort of starting to become the talk of the town. So, you know, I remember going to Sportel in 2004, five, and you try and get meetings with people. And then there was this sort of seminal moment in 2006 or seven where your diary was completely, you know, you'd, you'd look at that sort of portal and there'd be like 50 requests for meetings. And then, so I guess the sort of your own momentum and your, you know, just the the sense of where you're, you know, perceived in the market gives you that inner confidence. But it's a real shift between wanting to get deals done, hoping you can find a deal to do and hoping you can get something over the line to being in that position where everybody's coming at you. It's, it's It's a real mindset shift to be the guy weighing up deals and deciding, is this good enough for us? And a lot of people struggle when they get to that point, you know, they're so used to chasing deals, trying to make people fall in love with them, that when they're the Hollywood starlet and everyone comes around courting them, it's a completely different way to think. Did you, did you have any kind of conscious transition from one to the other or did it, was it just perfectly natural? I can't think of, I mean, I can't think of a a sort of a moment in time where I thought, right, you know, now we need to get on the front foot. We could be sort of major players. I think it just sort of happened via osmosis and you just sort of change change the way you outlook and stuff like that so that there wasn't a moment in time i thought right now let's get on the front foot and start get the big driver out and give it a whack sort of thing let's wind it forward a little bit so you and i'm coming back to what i said at the start uh, the story of performance the story of our industry there is no doubt about that so you put these two together croker comes along perform uh, the betting revenues kick in, the, the value of data starts. It's all becoming super clear. Then you buy Opta, which genius, I think, genius. You get floated. You decide to go private. You get bought by Blavatnik. And then the next big milestone is Blavatnik wants to do the zone. Do you feel you could tell us a little bit what was going through your mind at this point? Did you like that idea? Did you believe in it? Because like all of us, you believe in the bundle. The zone isn't so much the bundle. What were you thinking at that time when the main man with the checkbook is saying, uh, forget this perform stuff, uh, I'm going to create the Netflix of sport. 
What were you thinking? I was, I would say in about 2014, as the sort of the thought process was starting around this, I was mentally checking out, you know, I'd done 15 years at, at premium TV and perform, and I wanted a new challenge. And quite frankly, uh, one of the things I, I just love the build phase and I love the person that is sort of the personal touch of being in a business that of sort of a hundred or 200 people. I'm not sure I'm a big company guy and we got to, you know, 1500 staff and the stuff I love doing was flying around the world, opening up new offices, doing that. The big corporate stuff didn't sit that well with me. And I fancied doing another startup, um, so I had sort of said to, you know, when the delisting was happening and some of the thought process around the deal, it was a lot of it was driven by value. Len didn't believe that the market valued us as much as it should be. But the other thing was there was the sort of dissemination of this idea of around DAZN. And, you know, you just couldn't be a UK public listed company and create a business that, you know, from overnight went from a 50 million pound profit business to a business that would ultimately have to lose hundreds of millions to build the scale. So it had to be a private company play, but I'd sort of, so whether I, I'm not going to say I never believed in it or anything like that. It's like I had done my time. I was willing, I sold 50% of my shares in the business when we delisted and I left some in for option value. Um, and which, which I still remain a shareholder in DAZN. And I, you know, I, I really hope that they emerge triumphant, but it is a, it's extremely cash consumptive play to launch a sports broadcast network uh, and in particular a, a streaming one. So um, I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I was sort of, I was ready to go and start something else. Ollie, are you um, excited about the, the next 10, 15 years of the sports industry? You were a, you know, a technological pioneer at the time when technology was really changing but we're getting into web three as it's called there's a new dawn coming i guess do you have the same enthusiasm and drive to i think i know the answer but to, to explore the, the 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 next phase of, of where the sports industry is going absolutely but probably not as a protagonist or ceo i'm you know i feel like i've done that twice now and there, there's a certain bit of you that you know if i look back at those sort of the early days at Perform and then ultimately Massimo, you work every hour of the day and, you know, you, to get to have that energy to, to sort of build through, I kind of think it's it's a bit more of a young man's game. I want to be the, you know, I'm happy to be the croaker to someone else and, and build management teams and do stuff. But, you know, to, to go and start something afresh, certainly as I sit here right now, I don't, and, you know, you know, 90% of my time is is aligned to pitch, which is a business I absolutely love. And I could see myself doing this through for the next 10, 15 years, you know, in the middle of the sports industry, doing important deals, but not being, not being, you know, we're not a startup that needs, you know, needs that 24, 7, 365 total energy where, you know, you don't sleep and you're sort of waking up halfway through the night and having to write notes because something's interested to happen in your dreams sort of thing. That was a great question by Giles. I'd like to continue a little bit and I'll call this the sponsor question, the Sports Digita question. Um, Pick Guru, I'm not going to ask you about this because, you know, you get to get a chance to talk about your latest startup. I'm asking you because I'm on record as saying that the influence of fantasy, gamification, whatever you want to call it, I think even today is still under understood in the sports industry. 
the example I always give Ollie is that I've watched over the last two years many more Premier League games than I would ever have had any interest in. I'm talking about Norwich, West Ham, things like that, because I'm committed to fantasy. And, you know, I think our generation, with you being the obvious, one of the obvious exceptions, doesn't get that yet. They're still thinking with the the, the Last Wars playbook. Pick Guru, and, and I, I know how you got you, you know, the idea that you're getting mates together and it's kind of like it's social type, you know, involvement, gambling, lifestyle and everything like that. I think that's genius. You know, I, I heard you in a couple of other podcasts and I didn't think they were picking up on what you were saying strongly enough. You know, tell folks a little bit about how you feel in a world where single revenue stream subs businesses like DAZN are struggling, how gamification can get that engagement, can get signups, can get people involved, get ARPU up. Yeah, and and, and, and you know what? I think DAZN are thinking very strong and hard about what they do in this space. 100%. So, so they are, <laughs> They're um, going to buy you, aren't they? <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but um, I, I know that they are, you know, if you think about how do you engage people in sport, you know, if I look at what, you know, the masters for us, say we've just been through that with pit guru on average um, each day of the sort of the 1500 players we had playing our masters fancy game, they came back and checked the leaderboard 25 times a day, 97% of the people who entered checked in every single day and, you know, I remember speaking when I did it the first time around, I spoke to Barry Hearn, who ended up, you know, talking about sort of someone with the sort of Midas touch. He ended up coming second and winning a few thousand quid on the pot, I think, um, <laughs> which he certainly doesn't need. Um, but he said to me, he said, I've never watched the Masters like this. He said, I was literally glued to the screen. There you go. He said, he said, I didn't even have the winner. I, I was looking at whether bloody Phil Mickelson was going to birdie the last because that made a difference of 500 quid and 1,000 quid or whatever it was. Yeah, so there you, you go. If you can I, su- I, I, suspect, I suspect Phil had a few bob on it as well. Uh, almost <laughs> certainly. He, he, I, I, I've been told he is quite a proliferate gambler. Um so um, I, I think if you can create products that engage you, and Fancy Premier League is an unbelievable success story, and, a, and by the way, one that can get bigger and bigger and bigger. I look at the numbers every year. It, it, it goes up by 25% every year. That, yeah. and, and I actually think, you know, that's a single language product. You know, imagine if they, if they created a multi-language product that, that, that then you could become truly global. You know, I think these types of things are so important to the growth and engagement of sport. Yeah, well, um, I won't let this pass without saying that we are currently in the top 5,000 of those 8 million in the English Premier League. Uh, and it is addictive. You know, I can give you an opinion on the most obscure Premiership players these days. And last year I was even following Fulham and I will again next year. But I think that is what you're saying with Pick Guru is so important. Uh, And, you know, the thing that strikes me these days is that, and I'm coming a little bit into the pitch international business now, bundling. You know, the old business models of IMG and it was all about bundling. You know, I'm not giving you the really cool stuff unless you take the Indonesian Premier League type stuff as well. We've gone down these few years of single single choice, unbundling. 
And now for the last two weeks, the last two months, everybody's talking about bundling again. With your pitch hat on, how do you see the world of rights in the context of what I always call the polarization between the really good stuff and the long tail? Is there still a world of bundling out there, Ollie? The the, the old school bundle, no, where where you you know you have you know you have the Premier League and they have to take the Indonesian you know basketball league that. That, those days are gone because ultimately everyone has, you know, everyone has way more data at their fingertips and they'll tell you what works and what doesn't work. What I would say though, you know, if I look at our, the reason why pitch is so successful, what we do, if you take our media rights business, we have critical scale in four or five products. So yep. domestic football around the world. If you want, if you haven't got the Premier League, You've got to come. You've got to come to us because we've got the football league, the FA Cup, and the Championship, and that gives you not just, you know, it's not a single product, but that gives you, you know, 40, 44 weekends of high quality football um, that that's, that's that either supplements or complements um, the Premier League extremely well. In international cricket, you know, we've got four or five boards, so we've got critical mass. We can give you year round product if that's what you want. In golf, we've got two of the four majors. Um, and then in rugby, we've got all, you know, we've got the premium, we've got Northern Hemisphere rugby, whether that is you know, Six Nations, the Autumns and Premiership rugby. So you, you need to have what, you know, could we then flip, you know, the table tennis proposition alongside that? No, but you need to be extremely good at what you're doing and, and have critical mass in sports that people want. And if you can do that, you can build a very successful business. And then I guess outside of that, when someone says, you know, when, you sit, when I sat around with our sales team recently, we did sort of an offsite and, you know, one of them's like, you know, I think, you know, you know, we should hire someone in, in, you know, in this market or, you know, America, we should be focusing all of our time on America. Right now, if you've got anything that's any good, you can sell it in America because it's a hot market. If you want to be a strong agency, don't try and build a load of people in America because Quite frankly, anyone can do that. Focus on the markets where the rights holders have got no leverage and it's a tough market. And if you can be extremely good in a tough market and make the numbers work in those markets where your competitors can't, then you can buy globally and monetize globally. And I think that's what we do so well. We're extremely strong in the Middle East, which is a, a very tough market now. We're extremely strong in Asia, which you know over the last few years has been you know a, a real car crash. And if you can add that value there, then you can then you can benefit from that, you know, the really hot market in America. But don't just try and go after America because it's hot because you're not going to add enough value. Ollie, let me ask you, um, just change the subject a little bit. Roger kind of brought the subject up there when he was talking about kind of tongue half in cheek about the zone buying you. As you kind of sit there, you've been through these bids for companies, you've seen companies change hands, you've you've acquired, you've been acquired, you've been through that mill several times. How does the prospect of higher interest rates affect the sports landscape? Is it something that's on everybody's radar already? Is it just starting to percolate, or is it a, a, you know a clear and present danger to all kinds of consolidation and, and in, indeed in in how companies are run and debt financed? God, that's a question I haven't even thought about. To be honest, Grant. I mean, I think the more worrying thing is is consumer affordability. And, you know, right, right. and I, I think, you know, when you look, if we're going to hit 10% inflation in the UK by the end of the year and everyone's, you know, people are going to have to squeeze sports, you know, attendance is so important. 
and you know affordability and the, the, the ability to create a product that people will attend, create a good atmosphere, will then translate into a good television product. I think that's probably the bigger challenge that sport will face. Um, I mean, I still think you know higher interest rates. I mean, um, there's there is obviously a whole wave of private equity interest in in sport. Will that wane a little bit? I'm not sure because ultimately a lot of these private equity shops have done their fundraising, are sitting yeah. on cash, need to deploy it. So I, I still think there will be interest. Does that squeeze valuations? Maybe it does, but you know, who, who knows? We'll have to see. So, uh, Ollie, I wanted to talk, you were talking about um, private equity and sport, and we've seen a lot of that coming in and challenge existing rights holders. What have you learned from the guy you mentioned before, Barry Hearn, who came into a sport, uh, darts in this case, with a very sleepy incumbent, uh, the BDO. Frankly, he pistol whipped them into nothing. You know, like, what What have you learned? And we've, we've seen all the interviews with Barry, the book out now, all great stuff. It's always great value, but very few of us have been on his shoulder. What's it like to see a disruptor, an innovator like that? More and more of them are going to come at sport. How do you see that panning out? Um. Well, darts is really interesting. I think the genius about darts is they've created, the sport is almost incidental to the entertainment. And, you know, a lot of people turn up to watch darts. They will buy the ticket blind of who's playing. They just want to go for the party. And then actually they'll have, the sport is good. But, and I think that's such an important lesson for sport. I think, you know, the 100 cricket potentially has the opportunity to do that, you know, We'll, we'll have sold out, we could have sold out the four home games at the Oval this season, irrespective of who was playing, because people had such a fun time and the pre and post match entertainment was so good. So I think that's, and it's affordable as well. And both sort of the hundred and darts sort of tick those boxes. So I think, you know, what, you know, Barry is a master promoter and him alongside Sky, who have done an unbelievable job building that, building the personalities, you know, creating a really strong presentation team around it. I think, you know, if, if you're looking at building a sport, you, would look, you wouldn't have to look much further than beyond darts to look at how do you build and scale a sport that was, you know, at ground zero to now one that's a, a very big global proposition. Ollie, I like that line. Um, it's the party, not the tradition. And, and my first ever account was actually on PDC Darts with Marcus Robertson, who I know you know well, but I am now going back a very long way. Um, one that is bit of a curveball for you. I don't know if you represent it or not, but one of the things that I was involved with way back when was bringing sevens to uh, the global the global game of rugby sevens um, for HSBC and World Rugby were persuaded to package the deals all together and it was all about the Hong Kong sevens, etc, etc. The Hong Kong sevens, incidentally, being the world's greatest party. Yeah. I would argue that rugby sevens, despite being an Olympic sport, despite being played by insanely good athletes, both male and female, and, and being a very easy game to watch, you don't need to be an expert at the game at all, has absolutely not flourished in the way that I certainly had hoped when I invested on behalf of that. If you were Barry Hearn and you, and you had your big A3 piece of paper and a, and a red marker pen, you were going, how would we invigorate and make something special like Sevens, which has got Olympics, it's got amazing demographic, it's got amazing international... Um, capability and it's about party because Hong Kong is the world's greatest bit of a tough question but what would you do if I look at the success of darts ultimately what they've done is they have dominated countries 
So they've, they've become a massive product in England or the UK, a massive product in Holland. Now they're a massive product in Germany and all at the same time and, and Scandinavia's next and then Australia is next. And so you've got sort of some critical mass. I guess the problem with sevens is it was a bit like a globetrotter proposition. So, you, you know, it was you were just selling to different audiences around the world. Was there a real narrative? I'm not sure. Um, so having critical scale in markets, I think, was was important. Um, and ultimately, darts versus rugby uh, sevens is darts is the sport, right? Rugby sevens is a variant of a much bigger sport. And so it's never the number one product. And so I think, you know, should you, I don't know, having, having that number one product, so in, you know, the Olympics or the Premier League or, or the PDC allows you to sort of market it much stronger and more robustly maybe than, oh, we've got this other thing. It's a slightly smaller variant. It's seven people. It's a bit faster. And it, it's all it's in these random countries all around the world. Maybe that was one of the challenges of, um, of scaling that. Um, Ollie, let's come back to pitch for a second. Uh, what you were talking about there with Barry is storytelling, I think. Uh, I think, you know, what we mentioned before you came on and, and the top of the show, we talked about um, things like women's boxing and, and women's football and Formula One is always a theme here. And, and you know where I'm going here with the sports documentary. How have you taken pitch into the, the idea of storytelling through these kind of documentaries? You've done... Pele and you've done Andy Murray have you got other plans to to do it? and if so what kind of like what have you learned from those first two documentaries that work and doesn't work I guess that there's two types of sports docs and that really there's sort of there's the all access and the story and the best ones are ones where you combine you combine access with a brilliant story so you know the Michael Jordan documentary is, is probably heralded as the greatest. The Maradona documentary, although there was there was not actually really any access there other than archive, but it was just an amazing story and beautifully put together. You know, you would probably look at those two and go, well, they are, you know, they're the beacons for, you know, absolute quality. I think we're, what we've learned is, a, you know, an access proposition without a real storyline is, you know, is potentially a little bit boring and it's probably only relevant to people that are very focused on that sport. So, you know, the, the, the Tottenham or the Arsenal all access documentary is interesting if you're a Tottenham or an Arsenal fan, but quite frankly, if you're not, it's of less interest. So our real focus now is around amazing stories. And we've got, I tried to call Jonathan Rogers beforehand just to check which ones I'm allowed to talk about, and he hasn't got back to me. So we, we've got four. Let's uh, assume all of them. That's well, a good assumption. <laughs> I'm going to get in big trouble if I if I t- if I tell you about any of them. I think so. Well, I'll tell you what. You can tell us, and we can cut it out if it's um, okay. I'm let's only do joking. That. Is it? Like you can just make say it rhymes with. Say you're doing a documentary about Beverton. Yeah, and we can just uh, <laughs> we can just be, got, um, we'll cut it out if if he if he doesn't like it. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got so we're doing this. We're doing the story right now of um, which will uh, which will go onto Netflix. Uh, it's it's called Figo, and it's the story of his transfer from Barcelona to to, to Real Madrid, which is one of the most you know controversial stories ever. He the was the head, best footballer yeah. in the world, the pig's head, and it's in, and when I look at that, it is by far the best film we've done. It's a it's a film that you don't have to be interested in Real Madrid or Barcelona. It's a sort of a defining football film. And you sort of watch the thing. And, you know, we've got Figo, Perez, 
Paolo Futre, Figo's agent. And at the end of it, you can't work out who's lying. They're, and they're probably all lying, but they all blame each other for what happened. And it's it's a, one of those great sort of Cluedo moments. Um, so that's that's kind of come out later in, I think that's coming out in August uh, on Netflix. Um, we've then got um, a, a very interesting, we're doing the Cantona film, um, which is really, and it's, it's quite interesting. It's He's like, he's a fascinating character. He's like, I don't this I don't want this to be an advert. I was a I was a pretty challenging individual. I want you to find the people that hate me the most. And so and so like you know he he knows how difficult he was as a human being. And so stuff like that that's where that's where these this is going and and ultimately the the big global buyers of this really want interesting stories now. Um so you know it's it's been it's it's not a wildly lucrative business. It's no. it's brilliant brand business because it gets you into some interesting conversations with some of the very big global platforms. It's sort of relatively complementary to our media rights business and it's really good fun. Yeah. Can I ask you all just in closing, and it's a, it's a wee cheeky question um, about a Scotsman. And it wasn't an easy job you had with Andy Murray. Are you happy with the way that came out, that doc? Ultimately, we were the we were the distributor, not the producer, right? And we came in and sort of rescued a situation where, you know, he had very very deep access, and you know, he was very. I think he was pretty worried about it going out because he's. I think probably when he first started filming it, he was half convinced it might might be the end of his tennis career, and then sort of by the end of it, I think he realised he could come back. He is who he is. And I think that's, you know, and love him or hate him, you know, is he the most, you know, the funnest of all characters, particularly at a very tough time of his life? I think what, you know, was it a, a laugh a minute? Probably not. But what it did resonate with, we got a lot of very, very good feedback from people that have been through tough times and, and working how to deal with such adversity. And, you know, he opened up, which I, I think was, which was quite unusual. It was the first sort of real injury doc out there. You know, is there scope to create a load more injury docs? Because they're pretty, they're pretty dark in places. I'm not sure, but it was a financial success. He, he's a very good bloke. And, you know, we were proud to sort of get involved in it at the end and, and did a great job for him and his production team. Ollie, we've, um, we've talked for an hour and um, your, your career has been to me fascinating, just the sort of charting it and, and the time that, as you said, you were maybe lucky at one point to get the break you did, but you haven't been lucky in the success that you've had. I think that's come down to your own entrepreneurial spirit and your own sense of creativity, which really comes through. On behalf of all of us at United Entertain, thank you very much for, for coming on the show and giving us your time. But also, please, please promise to come on in a few years' time, because I have no idea what you'll be up to then, but it will definitely be interesting and definitely be something that people will learn from. So from all of us, thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, thanks all. Ollie. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Ollie. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Really, really interesting. What, what, a, what, what a fascinating guy. You know, I, I, I didn't know Ollie as well as, as you guys did, obviously, but um, what a really, really interesting, smart, you know, clever experienced guy it's uh, it's always so interesting to talk to people like that well for me what's interesting is that we often get investor types who are coming on who are clearly changing the industry and we've 
met many of them and they they share a similar hypothesis about the value of the fan and therefore the unexploited value of the fan and therefore the business. Ollie didn't come from the investment side. He's come through from the creativity of the art of the possible, which is about engaging fan through product and through excitement that then has led to an investment hypothesis. And that it's just for me, he's a, a lateral thinker and always has been. And I think it's, it really came through. You know, I, I don't think there's a lot of luck involved anywhere. I think he was being incredibly modest there. You know, that phrase, cometh the hour, cometh the man. That's what happened to him earlier in his career at, at Premium TV. And he he took it. You heard the story. He presented bigger than everybody else. Um, yeah. uh, bravery, um, a, a, real, a, a realization of what he wanted to do when he wanted to get out. Um, pitch is, is a great business. You know, he's heavily involved in the hundreds and, and uh, some other fintech stuff. This is a, a guy that's adding value um, all over the place. And to any of our younger listeners, look at the story of Perform, Ollie Sitz Slipper, Simon Daniel, John Gleisher, uh, and you understand an awful lot about our industry. Yeah, I found it interesting, Roger, which is ex- what you just said there is exactly why I asked him that question. You know, because there are... There are moments like that in many people's careers, but they're they're too young, they they're too inexperienced, they don't have the courage, not that they don't have the ability, but they don't have the courage to step up and grab that opportunity when it comes along at a young age. And um, you know, Ollie did, and he was more than capable of following it through and, and it's led to an absolutely stellar career. And you know, I think Jels's point was right when uh, you were asking uh, about whether the cricket was formative. You know, I think if you're facing a fast bowler that gives you courage uh, so that when you know somebody says you know you're ready to interview for this job I think you're up for it uh, and again yeah. that's one of the other great lessons of life life is uh, sport is the, the dressing room of life well he wasn't afraid of the quicks it was the spinners he was having trouble with Roger. Yeah. so that's another <laughs> lesson in there well listen fellas as always um, so much fun so much fun doing this um, all that remains is to thank our guest Ollie Slipper to thank my two comrades in arms here, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan, and to thank, obviously, our guest, Ollie Slipper, uh, for a fantastic conversation. You can follow us, if you're not doing so already, on social media. You'll find us on Twitter, at EntertainedR. You can follow me, at TTMYGH. You can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And myself, at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. <laughs>